Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here, and we want to welcome you to our broadcast, 90-minute long broadcast that will assist you in understanding current events in light of biblical prophecy. I'm at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga. On this Sunday, tomorrow, we're going to be at the Victory Baptist Church on Lafayette Road in Rossville, Georgia. 9.50 the first service, 10.50 for the morning service, 5 o'clock a Q&A, and 6 p.m. for the evening Bible study. Come and join us, if you will, a one-day prophecy conference, Victory Baptist Church in Rossville, Georgia. Well, we have Ken Timmerman standing by. I pre-taped a conversation with Ken about the 41st anniversary of Ayatollah Ali Khomeini returning to Iran. This is such key information, and this week it was 41 years ago this all happened. You need to hear that. Sharam Hadian will join us. He left Iran with his family just prior to the Ayatollah coming back. And we'll also have Dr. Don DeYoung. There's some activities in the heavenlies that we need to talk about. It's a report of a space item that is about the size of the Empire State Building in New York City. It's coming close to the earth. We'll talk about that with Don DeYoung. It's all ahead here on Prophecy Today. We wanted to be able to talk with Ken Timmerman today, so we pre-taped an opportunity to catch him on the 41st anniversary on the Islamic takeover there in Iran with the establishment of the Islamic Republic. Ken had to go dark on a special assignment, so we pre-taped this. We wanted to have this information. It's so key this week. Actually, what was going on, Ken, prior to the Ayatollah coming out of France to go in back home to Iran? Well, you know, Jimmy, I, I was actually in France when all of that took place, and it was obviously a huge public event. We had friends and even family members who were going back and forth to Tehran at the time. Nobody at that point in 1979 could have foreseen easily return of the Ayatollah would usher in 41 years of darkness, which is what we have seen. Now, I say nobody at the time. They could have if they had read his sermons, and his sermons were available. But as we learned, you know, many, many years later, the sermons were never read by the CIA. Uh, It's absolutely extraordinary. And you had experts on Islam who had sent them, Bernard Lewis, had sent them to the CIA, and they never read them. So, we could have known if we had been reading them. And I'll give you one more little anecdote. I was sitting in France, right? I was able to read them in a short compilation, a short little green book, The Sayings Mm. of the Ayatollah. And we learned uh, all the different things that you had to do to preserve the Ramadan fast if you were intending to have sex with various individuals or beings. And I won't get any more explicit than that, but it is very, very explicit in Khomeini's speeches extraordinary. We should have known it was coming. Today, at 41 years old, this regime is very powerful. The weekend before the anniversary, they set off a new missile called the Rod missile. It means thunder. It has new engines. It's supposed to have a maneuverable warhead. This is bad news for the United States, bad news for Israel. It's bad news for our friends in Europe. As we look back at the history prior to the 
beginning of the Islamic Republic there in Iran. We know that President Jimmy Carter, who was in office in 1979, basically played a key role in removing the Shah of Iran and that opening the door for the Ayatollah to come back into Iran. Now, he had been out of the country for a number of years, but he still had the contacts with the people there in Iran. He had still been developing a open door to establish this Islamic Republic, had he not, Ken? Well, that's right, Jim, and he used at that time cutting-edge technology, cassettes, audio cassettes that would be hand-delivered uh, stealthily to mosques all around the country inside Iran. He was living in Iraq under protection of Saddam Hussein uh, at the time, and so the entire mosque network became his advance guard, if you wish, the people who were going to carry the revolution in, into Iran. By the way, Saddam Hussein allowed him to leave to go to France at the request of the Shah of Iran, who wanted him gone from Iraq, who did not realize, the Shah did not realize, that sending him to France would make him available to the international media. Hmm. So you had the BBC in Paris interviewing Khomeini, and he was telling the BBC how he was going to usher in a great new era of human rights under Islam, and these people fell for it. And when they allowed him to come back into the country, he then had a base upon which to develop all these people that he had been communicating through the latest technology at the time, those cassettes. I can remember when I was trying to sell some of my teachings on cassette. But with that base, how did he really develop the Islamic Republic? How did he go about getting this all together, Ken? Well, one of the things that happened, Jimmy, is he staged a coup on February 11th, 1979, with the help of a group called the Mujahideen Halq. They were working 100% with Khomeini at the time. They later broke with him in 1981 and went into exile. And today you see them all over the world parading about as, his, as the biggest opposition to the Islamic regime. They are not opposition to the Islamic regime. They want an Islamic republic. They wanted an Islamic Republic in 1979. They want one today. They just want to be in control of it. And it's really sad when I see how people in our Congress in Washington do not understand that the Mujahideen, this group that's still out there parading to be uh, Democrats, are nothing like it. They are Islamic Marxists, and they would like to subjugate the Iranian people a second time. What does it look like today? How has, over the 41 years, progressed to today? And are they as strong as they were when the Ayatollah came to power? Uh, they are much more powerful today. They have solidified power. They have, you know, this iron-clad circle of defenders in the Revolutionary Guard in what's called the Basij, which is like a popular army or a popular militia. And they are now able to do things they couldn't do just 10 years ago. Ten years ago, if there had been uprisings, as you've seen in five cities or ten cities, they would not have been able to put them down. They did not have enough anti-riot troops. Today they do. You've had serious, serious demonstrations in hundreds of localities around Iran over the past six months, and the regime always seems to have enough troops. So they are much more uh, entrenched than they were before. They have feet of clay because the economy is dissolving. The U.S. sanctions program has been very, very effective, and they are extremely worried about this. I've heard reports recently, Jimmy, even of top regime officials trying to get their money out and get their family out while they still can. What about the fact, why have they started to hate the Jewish people and then, of course, the state of Israel, plus the United States? What brought about that hatred? 
Well, that began from the very beginning. Remember, America was the great Satan. Israel was the small Satan. It's still that same way in all of their all of their statements, all of the regime um, propaganda that comes out. But it comes from Islam. Uh, Khomeini was saying this is what the prophet said, the so-called prophet of Islam. This is what he says in the Quran. He says the Jews will never be your friends. They will always betray you, and we are a, 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 have an eternal war against them. So it's not new. It's just been given a new expression and uh, a new potency behind it. Now there is a state on its way to becoming a nuclear weapon state that hates the people of Israel, that hates the state of Israel, and is seeking to destroy it. It seems like the man who has taken Ayatollah Ali Khomeini's position, the present supreme leader, was very dependent on Soleimani who was the military genius there in the authority that really controls the nation, with him gone, with Soleimani being assassinated out of the way. Are they going to be able to be successful and ultimately reach some of their goals? Well, you're right that the current Supreme Leader, Khamenei, was very, very close to Soleimani. His death is a huge blow to the regime and also to Khamenei himself personally. I think the jury's out on what the impact is going to be. My sense, and I've said this on this show before, my sense is that the regime is going to back off some of the extremely aggressive external activities because they know that the United States is watching and we can get their leaders where we want when we find them on the battlefield. What about those Congress people that you were talking about a moment ago who don't recognize what's going on? Are they totally ignorant of the fact that this is a dangerous regime, a dangerous state that sponsors terrorism all over the world? Uh, no, I don't think that's the case. They, they are actually against the regime, but they are deluded by the Mujahideen who send armies of lobbyists all across Capitol Hill. I used to fight against this when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill. They send these letters around, these dear colleague letters. It's people who are well-intentioned but ignorant, and unfortunately there are many of them in the United States Congress. What do you think, Ken, is the last question here. How should we handle the situation as United States citizens and a military governmental operation in the future, in the near future? I know the long future is foretold in the Bible, but what about the near future? Well, in the, in the near future, I think President Trump is doing the right thing. He's keeping up military pressure. He's making them very afraid. He's deterring the regime from action, from big military action against him. And I'm hoping that he will give more support to the people of Iran as they rise up against the regime, because ultimately they are our best hope. They are pro-American. They don't like this uh, Islamic regime. They want freedom. They want to be able to travel freely, and they, they want to be like just ordinary people, and this regime has painted them all as terrorists. They are our best allies that we have. I would certainly hope that the president would be supporting them in the future. That's the voice of Ken Timmerman. I caught him at an airport just before he was boarding an airplane, going dark for about a week on a special assignment. Ken, thank you so much for giving us this moment and helping us to recall what happened 41 years ago, the establishment of the Islamic Republic there in Iran. Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. Thank you so much, Ken. We appreciate you just taking a quick moment to give us that insight about the return of the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini coming back into Iran, and ultimately, within six weeks, a revolution that turned Iran from a monarchy to an Islamic republic. Very important. We'll have a conversation in just a moment here on Prophecy Today with Sharam Hadian. He was living in Iran at the time of the Shah. 
You don't want to miss that conversation. His dad was working for the Shah and left there, and they came to the United States. Great information all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. And that's good. We're here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, because we're going to be over in Rossville, Georgia, just a couple of miles away. We'll be at the Victory Baptist Church all day Sunday, a one-day prophecy conference. Victory Baptist Church located on Lafayette Road there in Rossville. Uh, we'll be there for the 950 Sunday School combined, and then the 1050 service in the morning, 5 o'clock Prophecy Q&A, 6 p.m., the evening teaching time. Come join us. That's the Victory Baptist Church in Rossville, Georgia. Well, as promised, we go now to David Dolan for his Middle East News Update. Let me begin with this. We have been talking about with other broadcast partners, David, the time of the return of the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, which was 41 years ago this week. And in light of that, the Iranians launched an advanced ballistic missile. It was a terrifying show of military might. Uh, They're standing up on their hind legs and they're saying to the world, we're ready to take on anybody, even the United States and the Jewish state of Israel. What do you know about this, and is it connected with anything else that's been going on? Well, Jimmy, the Iranians, as you say, have been celebrating. That's not everybody by any means. A lot of the people are not so thrilled that they're ruled by these clerical leaders. But as you say, and uh, 41 years ago this week, Ayatollah Khomeini came back 
out of exile. He was in France, flew into Tehran. Uh, the United States helped that happen. Jimmy Carter, uh, president at the time, uh, facilitated that, believe it or not, but nobody realized what a radical regime was going to follow. But we've had 41 years of that regime now. And, uh, yes, they are building ballistic missiles. They are arming themselves to the teeth. We now have reports this past week from the Pentagon that around 100 U.S. soldiers were wounded in their strike against our bases in Iraq a little over a month ago. Twelve of those are still being treated for serious uh, brain injuries. So uh, they're out there. And, Jimmy, uh, just this week also, in fact, the same day as the missile launching, we had Israel launch some strikes against Iranian positions near Damascus. Now, that's not news because that happens fairly frequently, but it is news in the sense that the Russians warned on Tuesday, I believe it was Tuesday morning, the Russian ambassador to Syria warned Israel to stop strikes against Iranian positions in Syria, uh, and he said, we will join in the response along with Syria if these strikes continue, and yet the next day there was uh, this Israeli missile strike from uh, the Golan Heights is what the Syrians claimed, uh, Israel hasn't confirmed that. But that came, Jimmy, after a 747 jet that the Israelis struck in Syria six months ago. It's an Iranian jet. It was bringing supplies, missiles, weapons to Hezbollah, mainly in Lebanon, but also to Iranian forces in Syria. It was taken out of commission. Well, they repaired that, and on Wednesday it flew back to Damascus in uh, apparent celebration again of Khomeini's uh, arrival 41 years before. It was the same day. And the Israelis that night uh, struck uh, around that plane. Several Iranian Revolutionary Guard members were killed, and some others were killed in that. And the Syrians uh, fought back in the sense that they fired anti-missile missiles at the incoming Israeli missiles, apparently. Now, again, Israel hasn't confirmed this strike, but it's pretty clear it was. And uh, there was, a, you know, uh, explosions over Damascus. So this is very, very serious. Uh, by the way, Jimmy, the Russian ambassador to Syria added that if there is a war between Syria and Israel, and he said that these actions by Israel are increasing the chances that there will be a direct clash between Israel and Syria, that Russia will definitely back Syria, its ally. Hmm. It will not be on Israel's side. It will join in the fight against Israel, well, we all know this is, well, maybe our listeners don't all know, but you and I certainly do, that this is prophesied in the scriptures. Russia will, in the end, be an enemy of Israel. Still, Putin is friendly with Netanyahu, the Israeli leader, but these are signs of what's coming, and uh, the question is when. And uh, also, Jimmy, the uh, last thing to say about that, I want to quote this. This was a statement issued by the Iranians after the uh, strike in Damascus, Quote, the Islamic Republic of Iran will give a crushing response that will cause regret to any kind of aggression or stupid action from this regime, now they're talking about Israel, this regime against our country's interests in Syria and the region. Now that was the Abbas uh, Musavi, the Iranian foreign ministry spokesman. So they are threatening all-out war. Again, though, the Israelis uh, pointing out, hey, we didn't invite you into Syria. We don't uh, need you north of our border building bases against us. Uh, y your country's, you know, a thousand miles to the east almost of us. 
Uh, you're not to our north, that's Syria, and if you're going to continue these nefarious actions in Syria, we're going to continue to respond. So that message is being delivered apparently also to the Russians and to the United States as well, watching this whole situation unfold. Yes, and political leaders making pronouncements across the world that are key as we understand the end-time scenario found in Bible prophecy, as you mentioned Ezekiel there, chapter 38. Also in Israel, the Israeli defense minister, Naftali Bennett, who is a major player politically in what's unfolding upcoming elections, of course, he'll be key in that. But uh, this last week, he went to a yeshiva in the north of Israel. He, by the way, is an Orthodox Jew and a Jewish settler. He made a statement that Israel is now in the era of the Third Temple. That's pretty provocative, isn't it? Well, it is, coming from such a senior leader and, of course, the head of his party as well. He's not a member of the Prime Minister's Likud party. He has his own party, but he's a very powerful politician. He has American uh, roots as well. His parents were from the United States. And yes, uh, he's just stating the obvious that if there's going to be all this conflict, if we have all these enemies coming against us, again, Israel's not in inviting Iran to support Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. They're not inviting Iran to set up a militia in Lebanon, where, by the way, Jimmy, this week we've had a lot of unrest. We've had tear gas and rubber bullets used against protesters uh, trying to get into the parliament building in Beirut. These are mostly anti-Iranian protesters that want to see Hezbollah curbed. And, of course, I'm talking about Hezbollah, this huge militia, you know, 150 thousand rockets, we believe, aimed at Israel from there. They don't want this. They don't need this. But this is all the reality. And if there is going to be conflict, then Israel is going to do what they want to do, is essentially what uh, Naftali Bennett is saying. Uh, we will carry out policies that we wouldn't do outside of war. But if you attack us, if you continue to do these things, then we will take more and more of our biblically promised land which it is. We will take more and more of our capital city, as it's been for 3,000 years, uh, Jerusalem, back, and we will take control, complete control, over the Temple Mount, which uh, Israel only has the partial control that she does today because of another war, <laughs> the 1967 Six-Day War, when Israel, of course, went up and captured the old city and the Temple Mount, and, um, you know, this was, again, a result uh, of uh, a conflict launched against Israel. So they're prepared to rebuild a temple if they can, Jimmy, and they're not going to just one day, you know, tomorrow seize the area and throw all the Muslims out and start this action or something like that. But if they are attacked by these very people, the Muslims that want to see them destroyed, then who knows what the results will be. That's essentially what he's saying, but it is in his heart and the heart of many other Israelis to see uh, a temple return. And, uh, you know, again, uh, it's up to their enemies if they want to do it or not. And, of course, ultimately you and I know it's in the hands of the Lord, and he will allow attacks upon Israel. But as he's made clear in his word, the various prophets foretold, Israel will not be destroyed, she'll be attacked, she'll have wars in the end, but will not be destroyed, and eventually will have full control over every inch of what God promised the Jewish people they would have, uh, and that includes 
not just the Golan, the territory into Lebanon, territory into Jordan, uh, territory into Egypt, even if uh, if it comes to that. So that's uh, what the Lord said. It's going to happen someday. That is an absolute. And one of the reasons we have David Dolan give us his Middle East news update is to stay on top of a key region, understanding how current events are actually setting the stage. A war may produce a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Well, that's what the Bible calls for. Down the line, this will come to pass. David, thank you so very much. A very key report each and every week. We're so thrilled to have you with us, buddy, on the broadcast team. We'll talk again next week. Well, Jimmy, I'm glad to do it. God bless you. We're going to take a break when we come back. Sharam Hadian. He was born in Iran. He was born during the time of the Shah of Iran. And he and his family left before the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini returned. We're going to talk about that time with Sharam. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy D. Young. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. As I mentioned earlier, we're here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's good because we'll be at the Victory Baptist Church just a couple of miles away over in Rossville, Georgia for a one-day prophecy conference all day Sunday. Love to have you come if you're in the listening area of WDYN. I used to manage that radio station, Tommy Sneed, the manager now, and their signal reaches out to those in the Chattanooga area. So we're inviting you to join us for the prophecy conference Victory Baptist Church, Rossville, Georgia, 950, 1050, 5 o'clock in the afternoon for our Q&A, and then 6 p.m. for the teaching service. Come and join us, Victory Baptist Church in Rossville. Well, I want to continue conversation about the 41st anniversary of the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini returning to Iran and some of the background as surrounding this particular historic event. Sharam Hadian has a ministry, The Till Project, and he has a website. I'm going to ask him to give you that website in a moment. But I want to talk with Sharam because he was born in Iran, 
prior to Ayatollah returning under the Shah. I want to ask him about the Shah. His dad was a military member and worked for the Shah because of that. We'll get into that in a moment. Sharam, tell us, if you will, very quickly, the Tell Project and your website. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung, for having me at TillProject.com. So it's T-I-L-Project.com, which stands for Truth and Love. Uh, that's our website, and they can also join us there uh, if they want to get our email newsletter. They can subscribe there because we have a lot of, with world events shifting, as you know, Dr. DeYoung, we have a lot of new content coming out dealing with uh, prophecy and what's uh, happening. And even we've talked before on the program about Iran and Bible prophecy, very interesting things there. Yes, absolutely. That is correct. That's what God's Word calls for. Well, talk to me just a moment about the Shah of Iran. Your dad did work for him in the military. He resigned, and and you and your family left Iran before the Ayatollah returned. But give me a little bit of insight into the Shah. Was he a dictator? What kind of a leader was he? Well, this, this, this is the irony of, I think, the memory of most Iranians, because before the revolution— there was this imagery of the Shah that he was obviously a very opulent monarch. They, they used to call it a dictatorial monarchy. That's, that was kind of an authoritative monarchy was what, what it was referred to. Being that he was a monarch and that, that Iran was governed under monarchy, and this is going back now even to the 1930s when, when we had the, the sort of the rise of the Shah. The Shah, of course, is just a title. You know, his actual name of Reza Pahlavi, that was his name. But the Shah is a title for a king, a monarch. And that's actually where I get my first name from. My first name of Sharam is, is with Shah. So he was very tight, meaning that some would say he was brutal. Uh, yet, yet, the brutality, uh, now Iranians, as they reflect back 41 years later, after having lived under Islamic rule for 41 years, now they look back and say, boy, what a mistake we made. The majority, the majority of Iranians now, who, especially if they've left Iran or they uh, immediately after the revolution or even sometime between the revolution and now, now realize that they made a mistake because his uh, brutality was more towards keeping at bay those who were fundamentalists because there was a 10, 12, 15 percent, po- percent of the population of Iran that were religious fundamentalists within Islam, within Shia Islam in particular. And they were the ones who were convincing the people that uh, the Shah's opulence is against what Islam teaches. Islam is for justice. Islam is for freedom. Islam is for peace. Islam is the right way, and on and on and on. Uh, Well, that hasn't worked out very well, obviously. Mm. And the people were duped. But the Shah, yes, he, he was a monarch, he was opulent, he was at times brutal, the, the, you know, he had a secret police called the Savak, but predominantly it wasn't like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who would routinely kill his own lieutenants, his own generals, his own people. The Shah was predominantly going after those who were trying to overthrow and, and ultimately do what, what, what happened. And one more thing is that the Shah had a very, very tight relationship with the United States. And I think that was the other selling point of the revolution, is that, oh, the Shah is a puppet for the United States, which I don't think was the case. There was money involved. Obviously, there was a lot of oil money. Iran was what was one of the top oil producers in the Middle East. But the reality was is that the Shah's vision was he wanted to modernize and westernize Iran. If you look at Iran 
pre-revolution to now, it's a different, you can't even recognize it. Yeah, Sharam, I actually was at the White House when the Shah of Iran was having a meal with Jimmy Carter, who was then president, and there was a big demonstration outside of Iranian people. I was there as a journalist covering that story. And it, uh, the reports we got was that Jimmy Carter basically said any of those ties between Iran and the United States were going to be broken because of his human rights record. Do you think that uh, Jimmy Carter played a role in bringing down the Shah? Oh, without fail, without fail, which is why my dad, who, who was a liaison officer in the Army under the Shah, why he resigned. Because when Carter came in in 1976, Clearly, the relationship changed because they claimed that the Shah was brutal to his people. Well, how about now? I mean, I mean, what would we? What has history taught us now? What has been more brutal to the Iranian people? The Shah, his secret police, and again, dealing with predominantly those who were the religious fundamentalists, or forty-one years of the most most oppressive Islamic theocracy on the planet, and what it has done to the people of Iran. How many millions of Iranians have been scattered across the world, have left Iran, like myself, who could never go back. I mean, if I go back, I'd be arrested at the airport. So without fail, the the policies, the the, the appeasement policies of Jimmy Carter, of Barack Obama, of these Democrats, was without fail reason. My dad came back. The liaison role was cut off. The relationship with the U.S. military was cut off because he would come over and do training very frequently. And he realized that things were shifting. And in early 1977, we began to see a lot of demonstrations. And my dad resigned right around that time. He resigned his his commission, then um, went into business for a short time, for a couple of years, until late uh, fall of 1978 when the demonstrations were becoming, not just demonstrations, there was the burning of a theater in Iran that was a big deal and it was getting more and more aggressive, and it looked like the Shah was losing power. And so we left in, in December of 1978, and as you recall, Dr. Dion, it was not much after. Early February, the coup happened, and the Shah uh, in February left Iran. And uh, actually, he left in, in the, I'm sorry, in January. But, but then uh, I think it was the middle of January he left, and then early February, the full coup happened, and uh, they brought Khomeini back in. But the lesson isn't just for Iran. The lesson's for America, because the Iranian revolution was not, at the time, a violent revolution, meaning that there wasn't hundreds of thousands, thousands killed in the streets. It wasn't by guns. It was a revolution of ideas with the support of the United States at that time, meaning negative support. Unfortunately, the negative support of Carter, supporting Khomeini, who was in exile in France, supporting that this was going to be a better solution, a more free Iran at that time. Well, it hasn't worked out very well, has it? And Iran has become the greatest sponsor of terrorism, jihad, in the world. And then we have, as we just recently had, with the killing of of Soleimani. So leadership matters. Now, what is President Trump saying to the Iranian people today? Carter betrayed the Iranian people. President Trump is standing with the Iranian people, saying, we, we support your freedom, tweeting in Farsi. He broke the tweet record on Twitter when he, when he tweeted in Farsi, support for the Iranian people. Boy, what a difference leadership makes when we have strong, powerful leadership versus appeasement strategy 
towards a regime like like Iran. So the Iranian people, the lesson for America should be that don't give up our republic so easily. The, the American people are being duped because of the lying media, because of so many social justice churches. The American public is being duped to believing that moving towards socialism and Marxism and these things is a good thing. Global governance is a good thing, apparently. And therefore, they're, they're going to give up their republic. We, we, are, we are surrendering our nation without any type of a true spiritual battle. And today, the majority of the Iranian people, if you witness the protests that are happening over the last four or five years, the majority of the Iranian people and the younger people in the streets regret, regret ever letting Khomeini and the Ayatollahs into Iran. You know who's living fat in Iran today, Dr. Dion? Who's living wealthy? It's the Ayatollahs. While the people yeah. are suffering, yeah. the highest unemployment, suicide rates, it's the Ayatollahs, the, what I call the aristocracy of, of the Islamic Republic, that are living like fat cats in Iran, living off the money that is coming in, like the 150 billion that Obama gave them. Yeah. Well, this is absolute and lesson to people politically, especially here in the United States, but prophetically as well, uh, because of Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 5, Persia, who is modern-day Iran. Sharam, we could talk for another hour or so about this subject, but uh, time keeps us from doing that. We'll have to have another conversation down the road, but thank you so much for this insight into the Shah of Iran and the revolutionary activity of Ayatollah Ali Khomeini and the Iranian Islamic Republic. Thank you so much. We'll have another conversation soon. Thank you, Dr. Dion. God bless you guys. What an interesting conversation with Sharam Hadian. He and his family living under the Shah of Iran and then moving out just prior to the return of Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. Great insight from our conversation with Sharam. Well, we're going to have another conversation focusing on the European Union right now. John Rood does that for us, and John, let's get underway. Looks like the European Union's response to the Trump peace plan has been pitiful. Don't you think it's about time for this block to speak up on this peace plan and where they are standing on it? The EU, you know, has had a reputation of being very laissez-faire and not taken as a serious player on the level that they could because they're so divided. But there's a typical call for the European Union to be more assertive, and the Middle East is indeed where this manifests. So the European Union has taken a very pro-Palestinian identity. I do believe that this is from their conviction but they play it to their advantage because it's in opposition to the United States. So the uh, new EU foreign policy chief, uh, Josep Borrell, he just made his first diplomatic uh, visit to Washington, and uh, he has been known in coming out to uh, radically oppose President Trump's peace plan for the Middle East. And so the EU is particularly at the beginning of his mandate taking a stronger stand, trying to be assertive. Most likely, they won't make a uh, lasting 
impression on that because of the lack of cohesion within the group. But this is where they do plan to take the stand. Does this new minister in the European Union who is responsible for foreign policy, does he have a an overall plan in his mind, a Middle East strategy that he wants to follow, or is he in the process of developing that now? Well, the, his predecessor, uh, Mogherini, has, has done a lot of talking, and so indeed uh, they would certainly have a plan, and yet there's oppositions in the European Parliament, for example, to uh, watch the enormous amounts of aid to the Palestinian Authority, and that there would be... Uh, democratic values that are instilled there. But overall, yes, I, I do agree that there is a, a plan to go ahead with uh, the EU strong stand of a two-state solution. I've got a couple of items dealing with NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Seems like NATO members are agreeing to expand an Iraq mission. Uh, they're going to go in and assist the United States and this war-torn country to try to rebuild. Yes, there's uh, certainly issues here in Iraq. The NATO members are agreeing to expand. Upon looking at this situation, it's actually presented that the United States footprint could be reduced while other NATO countries would go into Iraq in an in increased fashion. It would be several hundred uh, soldiers. So there is an expansion in the training. There is a I believe, from my experience, that NATO has a consensus with the leaders at the top and the commands, even though there's certain opposition at lower levels. The Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, he indeed he was the Prime Minister of Norway two times for a total of nine years, I believe. And so uh, I'd like to go with what he says, that this is being put together to fight the international terrorism and some of the factions within Iraq probably don't have the influence to change the NATO expansion there. As we've talked in the past, John, NATO is somewhat of a surrogate military force for the European Union. And I understand the European Union is ready to defend the Baltic states uh, against Russia. Now, why the Baltic states and what's going on as they are confronted by Russia now? Well, the Baltic states, of course, are nations of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Uh, I've traveled and spoken throughout that region. There's not a real pro-Russian sentiment in those countries, and indeed, at one time, they were satellite republics of the Soviet Union. So uh, NATO sees them as very key players, and of course, we have the, the NATO assurance that if one of the member nations is attacked, that it's considered an attack on all. So uh, NATO is actually putting together what is entitled the Defender Exercise 2020, which will take uh, place in May and June. And so this is actually a very strong, perhaps the largest military exercises since the end of the Cold War. And uh, Russia does react to to such um, trainings. In the past, they even blocked the GPS signals in the region. So speaking of the Baltics, part of the, of the situation there is there's a serious lack of infrastructure. So NATO wants to show their capability to move in troops and resources quickly. Russia is certainly uh, taking note of this. 
As we think about the European Union, Germany is a major player, and their present leader, Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor, is coming to the end of her reign over Germany, and one of her politicos she had chosen to take her place has decided not to stay in politics, but even the critics of Angela Merkel are praising her as she comes to her end. What's she going to do? Anything that we would recognize as key in the European Union? Or if not, who is going to become the next leader, and will they be as powerful as Merkel? Uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, is the EU's longest-serving uh, leader. So she has agreed that she will not uh, uh, run in the next elections, and so she has stepped down as the party leader, and then her latest term uh, leading the EU will be over September uh, 2021. Um, there have been, even from some of the critics, uh, positive statements about uh, Angela Merkel, and in, uh, in particular, Portugal's prime minister. I believe a good amount of this has to do with the fact of uh, Angela Merkel being a uh, negotiator in the European Union budget. And so they would miss that particular expertise on her part. But I would expect now in the next year that we would see her coming to the forefront in terms of the European Union budget. A side fact to know is, indeed, even though the budgets are produced in great detail, the EU has never, that I know, has successfully balanced their budget. So there's actually you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, that are unaccounted for. So they are looking to her for a budgetary and finance leadership. Well, she still has about a year to go, and she's going to continue to be a major player in these current times in which we're living. We'll continue to watch that because the European Union is, as John and I believe, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, which is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. John, thank you so much. Great report. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Thank you very much. Very important conversation with John Rood talking about the European Union, the activities of that region of the world key to understanding Bible prophecy. Dr. Don DeYoung has retired recently from Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana. He's a man now who is a, a man of the outdoors, basically. I was talking uh, before we were able to have our conversation. He said he loves it when it's cold. He goes out to do ice fishing and hiking and everything else. And, boy, Don, for a man your age, you're staying right at it, aren't you? Well, thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate uh, the outdoors. Yes, absolutely. I do, too. But, you know, getting close to 80, I just am not uh, as energetic as I used to be out of doors. But I guess we better keep it up as much as we possibly can. Don, I wanted to get a hold of you because of a report coming out of NASA uh, about a enormous asteroid which, which was headed for the Earth. And it's about as big as the Empire State Building. What do we know about this asteroid? Well, Jimmy, actually, this kind of report is not that unusual. We have between Mars and Jupiter what we call the asteroid belt. Actually, millions of uh, rocks, which are certainly building size, and uh, some of them wander a bit from their orbit and do come close to the Earth. 
However, very seldom do they come, let's say, any closer than the moon is. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of debris out there. And I understand this asteroid is moving about 35,000 miles per hour. Boy, that's quick, and it can move pretty quickly into the area of our Earth, can it not? Well, it is, yes. These objects are drifting along at 20,000 miles per hour, 30,000 miles per hour. And because of that kinetic energy, there's a tremendous amount of energy there. And so that if there is an impact with the moon or with the Earth, a terrific explosion and uh, that kind of uh, cataclysm occurs. And uh, when you think of how much debris there's out there, it makes you realize how the Lord does protect us day by day. Well, in fact, can you elaborate a little bit more on what the effect would be should such a asteroid actually hit the Earth? Earthquakes and tsunamis and other items could happen that would really affect the Earth, would it not? Well, all of the above could uh, have an impact with something moving that fast, the energy that would need to be dissipated. You have winds over a 1,000 miles per hour, faster than any tornado or hurricane. You would have shock waves, which would be um, fatal to people. You have uh, much heat, certainly uh, tsunamis if it's near water, and uh, earthquakes and craters, you know, all of the above. It makes you realize, uh, again, um, the safety we have down here on planet Earth with that kind of potential all around us. Now, folks, if you're eavesdropping on the conversation, don't get too excited. We're simply talking about the potential for an asteroid this size moving this fast and what would happen if it did hit the Earth. But I understand, according to NASA, that its closest approach to the Earth is only going to be about 3.5 million miles away. Well, that is correct, which is about 10 times the distance from here to the moon. These things are moving fast, uh, but there's lots of room out there. There's a lot of emptiness to space. Even, Jimmy, when you think of a comet, their tail is typically a million miles long. There's just <laughs> there's a lot of room for that kind of thing above us. Now, Don, I know you're a student of the Word of God, and in particular, Bible prophecy. So I want to change our focus just a little bit, and let's move into the eighth chapter of the book of Revelation. That's where we see the first part of the presentation of the what we refer to as the trumpet judgments, chapters 8, 9, and 11. But there in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, it talks about the second of the trumpet judgments, which will be something that's large, like this asteroid being cast into the sea. And when it does hit the sea, one-third of the ocean will turn to blood, one-third of the fish will die, and one-third of the ships will be destroyed. That's basically what we were talking about. Should the asteroid that is our focus were to hit the earth, that would be the results, would it not? Well, it would, Jimmy. And uh, as we know, there are plenty of materials out there to provide for that kind of end-time event, or contrary, the Lord may have uh, his own supernatural objects that he provides. But we do know the results, even of an everyday collision with the kind of devastation there would be. And you know, Jimmy, uh, the thought is, whenever something happens in the sky, anything unusual, whether it's weather or a meteorite or whatever, people get upset. You know, we are so used to the stability of the sky above us. And in the end times where things are, from our view, out of control, how fearful that will be for the people on the earth of that day. 
just to follow up on that trumpet judgment, the second there in the eighth chapter of the book of Revelation, when you go over to the 16th chapter, you see in verse 3 there, that would be the vile judgments that all the ocean is going to turn to blood. One-third in the trumpet judgment, all of the ocean to blood, and every living thing in the ocean will die at that time. That's the future. That's judgment in the future. But again, this is simply reminding people of what's ahead if you prepare for that time by coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're going to, as they say, escape all of this. And people ask me, what, are you an escapist? Absolutely. I don't want to go through that time. But praise the Lord, that's what God's Word calls for, the rapture, to take us away from it. Yes, yes. Well, certainly it's a fearful time for uh, others, but for uh, God's children, it's really something to look forward to, uh, Jimmy, when things are made right and this heavens and earth are um, straightened out and brought back to their, um, you know, perfect state. So, um, yes, we, uh, we do not fear the future. Absolutely, and praise the Lord for that blessed hope that we do have. Don, great conversation. By the way, folks, you need to get a copy of Don's book. He's answering a number of questions about that sky he was referring to. I have a copy. You can get a hold of us here at Prophecy Today, and you can make that purchase of his book on astronomy. Hey, Don, thank you so very much. Appreciate your input. We'll have another conversation soon. Thank you, Jimmy. Till next time. Yes, sir. And we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, I have David James standing by. That'll be my last broadcast partner, and we want to be able to talk with him about an issue confronting the body of Christ. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. About a half hour left in the broadcast. I ask for 90 minutes. You're giving me that, which will help you understand current events happening around the world. By the way, that's what we're going to be talking about when we have my conversation with David James. Are these activities in our world today the fulfillment of prophecy, or is that yet to come? In fact, that's my poll question. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There you'll find the poll question on the left-hand column. If you'll scroll down, here's the question. With the many current events that have a connection to the prophetic scenario found in Bible prophecy, but are not the actual fulfillment of those Bible prophecies, do you believe these present events are a precursor to the actual prophecy yet to be fulfilled, which seems to be very soon now? That's the poll question. Please answer the question if you will. And remember, that's at prophecytoday.com. We now bring to this microphone David James, and we are going to have a conversation as we do each week, looking at some issue that may be confronting the body of Christ, the church, and helping us to better understand through biblical input into the conversation how we should walk in these days, especially prior to the rapture of the church, which actually could happen at any moment. 
I want to tell you, we got a hold of Dave. He is in Uganda. He's there for his first week of teaching at the Word of Life African Bible Institute. We have him on the line. The telephone system there in Uganda is not at the top of the list of great telephone operations. And so it may be just a bit of a different sound, but we wanted you to hear what he had to say. David, maybe it would be helpful and in light of what I've just said, for our listeners to know exactly where Uganda is in Africa, and then also give us an update on your ministry there. Sure. Well, Uganda is located on the equator in East Africa, and it's bordered by Kenya to the east, by Tanzania to the south, the Democratic Republic of Congo to the west, and South Sudan to the north. The headwaters of the Nile are located here at the outlet of Lake Victoria, and the Nile flows almost uh, directly north from here. Now, Uganda is on a plateau at about 3,600 feet. So even though it's on the equator, the temperatures the last couple of days have been in the upper 70s. So it's a great time to be here when it's winter in Indiana. This week I taught God's plan through the ages to over 30 students from several African countries. And next week I'll be teaching signs, wonders, and the charismatic movement, which is a huge problem all over Africa. And the ministry here also has a K-12 through school with around 300 students, and the director of the school is a Ugandan who graduated from the Word of Life Hungry Bible Institute when we were missionaries there, and you taught him there as well. And tomorrow, on Sunday, we'll be taking me to another ministry where his brother has been on staff for around 15 years, so we can talk about a possible future ministry opportunities. Well, please do give our love and a great big hello to all of those that may have been under the teaching when we were privileged to be able to be there at the Bible Institute in Hungary. What a great outreach you have. They call it even the Word of Life African Bible Institute. That is so great. Well, thinking about Uganda being in East Africa, one of the major news stories in the global headlines this past week has been the serious problem with locust swarms that are threatening the region and a possible famine. What can you tell us about that? Well, I've been following this story fairly closely for the past several weeks, and so the situation is that every so often there is an explosion of desert locusts, and they can devastate crops when they're swarming, and one of these outbreaks has been underway for several weeks now and growing daily. Uh, Let me read part of a recent report from Al Jazeera. They say, the insects are the world's most dangerous migratory pests. Locusts can swarm in billions, and in January they did so densely enough to force an Ethiopian airlines playing off course. Now they're invading not only Ethiopia, but Somalia, Kenya, Uganda, and Pakistan, and it's the worst outbreak in decades. And I watched a news report on this. It said a swarm of billions of locusts can travel as much as 120 miles in a day. And National Geographic describes the situation this way. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile, and each locust can eat its weight in plants each day. So a swarm of such a size could eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. And, Jimmy, I'll be in Ethiopia next week, so I'm not sure what I might see there. And just a few days ago, they reached Uganda, and when the rainy season starts in a few weeks, the locust population 
will explode by some estimates to as much as 500 times what it is now. Wow, it's good to have you on the ground there, and you can update us, of course, next week when you're there in Ethiopia. Well, this issue of the locust plague, combined with a lot of other natural disasters happening around the world, seems to have a lot of people asking questions and talking about these being apocalyptic events. What are a few of the things that you're seeing people talking about in addition to the locust activities? Uh, you're right, Jimmy. There's a lot going on in the world that people are talking about. Of course, everyone's attention is now on the, the novel coronavirus. And as of Wednesday, it was in 28 countries with the epicenter being in China, which is officially reported around 60,000 cases and some 1,400 deaths. But there's a Chinese doctor who has said the government has vastly underreported the numbers, and he suggested it's more like 1.5 million infected and around 50,000 deaths already. Already, which is staggering if he's right. And then there's where you are, Jimmy, for example, in Tennessee, where recently there have been earthquake swarms in both ends of the state. For example, uh, the ones in western Tennessee are connected with the New Madrid Fall in Missouri, which is set for a huge earthquake in the next 50 years. And if that one happens, buildings could come down as far away as Chicago with an estimated 86,000 casualties throughout the South and the Midwest. And, of course, a few weeks ago, we we were talking about the volcano erupting in the Philippines, just 20 miles from where I was teaching, and that's part of the 25,000-mile-long ring of fire around the Pacific Ocean, and that has some 450 volcanoes, and there seems to be increased activity, and anything could happen, including tsunamis. And then, of course, there are cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes, and in fact, it was a cyclone in the Middle East. I believe it was in the Indian Ocean, and that's what triggered the locust plague in Africa as the insects were blown in from the Middle East, uh, these long distance by the winds. And so, and we could just go on and on and on. Yeah, your report is giving us information that does sound as if it is apocalyptic events that are happening. And in fact, some prophecy teachers are saying that these events are indeed apocalyptic birth pains that are fulfilling end-time prophecies. Now, some quote from Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about the wars and famines and pestilence and even earthquakes in many places. In your opinion, David, are they correctly interpreting events in nature and the geopolitical realm of all that is happening in our world? Are they interpreting this in light of the Bible and what God's Word has to say. No, Jimmy, I would say they aren't. First of all, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are entirely about the tribulation and the judgments to follow, meaning that these events that Jesus speaks of won't happen prior to the rapture of the Church, and so the current events cannot be the fulfillment of these prophecies. Secondly, Jesus himself never uses the phrase birth pangs or birth pains in reference to anything leading up to his return. None of the Old Testament prophets use that terminology or imagery concerning the end times either. And if you do a search of the New Testament, only Paul uses this, and he does so only twice, and neither time does it have to do with things happening in nature or the geopolitical realm as a sign or signs of the end. For example, in Romans, speaking of the deliverance that will happen in the kingdom, Paul writes, for we know that the whole creation 
groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So Paul isn't talking about signs of the times, but rather that in the entire 4,000 plus years between the fall and Paul's day, the world has suffered and gone through these things, and they will come to an end during the kingdom. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul actually argues for the opposite happening concerning them being signs of the times when he writes this, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. In other words, the day of the Lord will begin with no warning, just as labor begins with no warning. You know, that was a great information that you've just given us, David, and I, I hope people might even go back and re-listen to the answer to my question there about these signs of the times. How do you explain then, as we're talking out loud about what is going on, what is happening? And how should we respond to people who say these are signs of the times uh, that we should be watching? Well, my first response is that there's a difference between signs of the times and fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus rebuked people for not being aware of signs of the times in his day and not living their lives in light of the coming of the judgment of God. So signs of the times is nothing new. Secondly, it's been over 6,000 years now since the fall, and birth pains have been happening the entire time, and they Mm. tend to come and go just like uh, pain with a woman giving birth. For example, whether it's global temperature, or volcanic activity or earthquakes, pestilences, famines, or major geopolitical events like the alignment of nations or wars. They've happened in cycles multiple times. And then using the labor analogy, some women are in labor for only six hours, some 12, some 24, some 36, some even 48. And while the labor pains may be coming closer together, you can never really tell how quickly the baby will be born. So as we move deeper into the last days, we can expect for stage setting for prophetic fulfillment to accelerate, but we can only say we're getting closer to the Lord's return. We can't say how much closer, because it's been getting closer for the last 2,000 years. And there are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled prior to the rapture of the Church. And what's important, Jimmy, is that we all need to be living as if we're going to face the Lord today while still planning for tomorrow. Yes, today could be the rapture. Live as if that is the absolute case. Well, as we conclude our conversation, David, remind us of some advice or basic steps that you would give concerning how to avoid falling into the trap of mishandling Scripture, especially as it's related to the end times. Well, first, I'd recommend getting a book on Bible study methods, for example, like Unlocking the Scriptures by Hans Finzel, which covers the three steps of Bible study methods, observation, interpretation, and application. Second, I'd recommend getting a book dedicated just to the second step, such as Roy Zook's Basic Bible Interpretation. Third, I'd recommend applying these principles to some of the easier, well-known passages of the Bible before moving to some of the more challenging prophetic passages. Then I'd recommend comparing 
our conclusions against a solid Bible commentary, like the Bible knowledge commentary, as a way of double-checking and confirming our interpretation. And when we're studying prophecy, there are sometimes dozens of passages we need to take into consideration and understand both in context and in light of each other to come to right conclusions. And when it comes to what different Bible teachers say, especially those who tend to be more sensationalistic in their style and messages and claims concerning current events and prophecy, we shouldn't take anything for granted. We're responsible for what we believe about what the Bible teaches, and so we shouldn't just assume that even Bible teachers we trust get everything right all the time. I'm sure you're like me, Jimmy, in that I've sometimes changed my views on certain passages over the years as I continue to study and learn, and that means that I was probably not completely right about what I believed or taught at the time. So everyone always needs to check out against God's Word what people are saying. You know, as I was listening to you give the answer, I was going to say before you mentioned you're much like me, referring to me, hey, this is exactly what David and I do as we're studying Bible prophecy and then making these reports right here on Prophecy Today. Great advice, great conversation, great insight, David. I so appreciate it. We're praying for you out there in Uganda. And as I understand, next you go over to Ethiopia, correct? That's right. And Lord willing, I'll be talking to you from there. We're looking forward to that. Thank you, David. We'll have that conversation next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Very important conversation with David James. You might want to go back and listen to it. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com, where you can listen to it on Prophecy Today Radio Network. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll take a look at the book. It's all here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. 
It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had our broadcast partners come to the broadcast table with some very important information on a number of current events in our world. However, let me say early on that these current events are not the fulfillment of the prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible. I do believe they could be the precursors to that ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic passages. We report these stories to help each and every one of us realize how close we are to God's plan for the future. In my weekly conversation with David James, you heard us discuss some Bible study principles that will help us to be able to understand God's biblical plan for the future and how close it may well be to being fulfilled. Having said that, let's now turn to the reports from our broadcast partners. By the way, if you missed any of these reports, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you can find archived these reports so that at your convenience, when the time is good for you, you can listen to these reports. Once you've done that, do me a favor. Pass this information along to a friend. Help them to know how to link to these reports so they can hear them as well. Now, let me share with you the highlights of these reports, and I'll give you my prophetic perspective. Ken Timmerman, we pre-taped an interview with Ken as he was getting ready to go aboard an airplane to fly to a certain location, had to go dark for about five days, a special assignment that Ken is on. So we wanted to get his remembrances of the time while he was serving in Paris and the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini was in exile there, and he left to go back into Iran, and ultimately six weeks after arriving back home, he was able to call a national referendum, which brought the Iranian people into an Iranian Islamic revolution, an Islamic republic. Gave us the details as to how the Ayatollah was preparing the nation of Iran to receive his plan for the future and the establishment of that Iranian Islamic revolution. David Dolan is the man who covers the Middle East for us. He's been doing that for different news-gathering organizations for over 30 years. David reported about the Israeli defense minister, Naftali Bennett, who is making the statement today that we are in the era of the Third Temple. Often on this broadcast, we've talked about the preparations to be able to put up that third temple. Now, let me just remind you, there are two temples in the future. The Tribulation Temple, that's the one that the Orthodox Jewish community in Israel is preparing to build. And then the temple, the one that is described in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 46, 202 detailed verses on the Messiah's temple, the one that Jesus Christ will build. 
However, that tribulation temple will be destroyed after a number of things happen. The abomination of desolation when the Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies of this tribulation temple and claims to be God, which will be the abomination of desolation. And then there will be a statue put in that temple on the Temple Mount that will be worshipped. This statue of the Antichrist will be worshipped by everybody else on earth. Now remember, Christians, that's not us. We will have gone into the heavenlies at the rapture of the church, which does take place before the beginning of the tribulation period. Sharam Hadian is a gentleman who has a ministry that is reaching out to Muslim people around the world to help them come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But at the same time, Sharam is teaching the body of Christ the concerns that we must have about the Islamic faith. I want to remind you that Sharam and I talked about him being born in Iran in the time of the Shah of Iran. His mom and dad left Iran prior to the fall of the Shah. They left because they could see the handwriting on the wall and what was going to happen when the Ayatollah returned to Iran. He talked about the danger that Iran is today because of that Islamic Republic. It's a report that if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to it. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union for us. This is another very important region of the world. And without a military force, the European Union is using in its place NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is a military operation. John reported to us that NATO is expanding their mission into Iraq. What we see is the European Union as the infrastructure of the revived Roman Empire. They will have their own military in the tribulation period, and ultimately they will deal with the Antichrist who will be located in Iraq, biblical Babylon, Revelation chapter 18, which is indeed the last event of prophecy to be fulfilled before the Messiah Jesus returns. Don DeYoung and I talked about an asteroid the size of the Empire State Building moving at 35,000 miles an hour. It's not going to hit Earth. It will only come within three and a half million miles of Earth. But when you look at Revelation chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, when that large object falls into the sea, a third part of the sea turns to blood, a third part of the fish die, and a third part of the ships on the waves of the sea will be destroyed. That's the second trumpet judgment, and we can see the possibility of that being able to come to pass. Again, I mentioned David James early on. We had a conversation about all these signs, not actually fulfilling Bible prophecy, uh, but indeed most likely a precursor to what is going to happen after the rapture and during the tribulation period. Let me remind you, there is no prophecy that must be fulfilled before the rapture. Each and every report has been used to help us see how close we may well be to God's plan for the future. Again, let me say, what happens first is the rapture, and then all of these prophecies will unfold and be fulfilled. No prophecy before the rapture actually means that rapture could happen at any moment. 
And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.